Amen. You can be seated. And as you are, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, we're doing a series called The House That Jesus Builds, and we're looking at uh, the foundation that Jesus lays for the house that he's building up. And as you turn, I want you to think about your house. So think about your house and think about the pictures that you have chosen to put up in your house. So who are they of? Who took them? Why did you choose that picture and not another? Are they pictures of memories you want to hold on to or people you don't want to forget? Or are they artificially contrived environments that you're trying to present yourself in the best possible light? What are the pictures of? Now, one of my favorite family pictures that will never go up on our wall, but is one of my favorite is this one. Maxine, let's pull up this first picture. All right, so this is just a normal day of, you know, Cynthia and the boys at SeaWorld. Now, let's zoom in to why this is my favorite picture. <laughs> That's my man, Sam. And I love this picture because uh, Sam has not learned the artful strategy of pretending for pictures. He hasn't learned how to contort his head to put it in the best possible light so you can't see your devil chin or he hasn't learned the leg to prop out or the things that all of you know what you do to make yourselves look the best. He hasn't learned how to pretend he is fully expressing his emotional state at this moment. And the reason why I love this picture so much is because that's exactly how I feel every time I hear, okay, come on, let's take a picture. <laughs> so that's how I feel on the inside and he's just hasn't learned to cover it, cover it up yet. So think about your pictures. What pictures do you have in your house? You know, if you go throughout history and look at different times and places, people would have different images in their home. It's only a rare or it's a new phenomenon even to have images of ourselves up. So if you would go to a, a typical British home in the 1860s, there wouldn't be any pictures or images of the family there. They would all be images of the queen, you, this is who rules here. This is who reigns. So I want you to think about, all right, if we went into Jesus's house, what type of pictures would he have up? Who would the pictures be? Now, I want you to go back. So uh, town just outside of in Syria, uh, it's a town called Duro Europus. And it was a town in 256. This was a border town on the Euphrates River. And it was uh, about to be invaded by the Persians. They were coming to invade about 10,000 people. They had walls surrounding the town about 8 to 10 feet. So in ancient cities, when your city was about to be sieged, everybody would come in. And then you would just shove everything into the walls. And you would try and hide in the walls to hide out the siege. Well, the Persians eventually overtook the city, uh, came in, raped, pillaged, plundered, and then abandoned the city. And the city was abandoned for almost 1,800 years. And then the sands came in and it got covered up in the, in the desert. And then in World War I, a group of British expeditionary troops uh, discovered this city. And then they come in and there's this marvel because it was like almost intact. This was like an archaeologist and historian's dream because there's all these things from this city that had been left preserved and intact. And here's a couple of the pictures. Pull up a couple of pictures from the things they found. And so this is the synagogue, kind of the, the gem of the finding was the Jewish synagogue. And you can see they're coming in in the synagogue and all these beautiful artworks and frescoes that are painting the entire wall. Pull up the next one. 
And so this is kind of landscape, so you can see just kind of the scale. We're talking about 30, 40 feet high, about 10 feet deep. Let's go to the next one. Um, so this is, they also found a house church that was in the wall, and it was a fully preserved, intact house church. And so this is part of the baptistry. You can see some of the frescoes and paintings here on this wall. Let's go to the next one. Here's a picture. Now, this is Moses. Now, what's interesting is all the different characters on these walls were, were wearing this outfit. So what shocked the people when they came in and they saw the pictures, it wasn't kind of the faces that the people were making in the pictures. It was what they were wearing. So this actually is the, the philosopher's gown. So this is representing Moses as a Greek philosopher. Now, you don't have to know a lot about history to know that Moses wasn't a Greek philosopher. So what's going on here? Is this just like the Syrians doing cultural appropriation at its worst? Why is he dressed up this way? Now, what's interesting is not only Moses, every single, almost every uh, person in the different pictures are dressed up like this way. Here's one of the images of Jesus. This is the oldest image of Jesus that we have. And sorry, you can't really see it. It hasn't been, you know, refreshed. But what, what's happening, it's about 10 feet tall, and it's Jesus in that philosopher's gown. And this is the image of him raising the, one of the paralytics. And uh, there's all these images surrounding <coughs> And so you go into this house, and the picture they have of Jesus is that he looks like a philosopher. He's wearing the philosopher's outfit. And I always think, why? Why is he wearing this? So we're looking at Matthew chapter 16, and we're talking about the house that Jesus builds. And one of the things I want to see this morning is that the first foundational stone that that house is built upon is, is the task of Jesus as teacher. He's teacher. So what we're thinking about, he's wearing this image of philosopher. So we think philosopher, I don't know what comes to your mind when that, I was a philosophy major, so probably nothing good. But when you think, all right, philosopher, so you need to think, all right, they're viewing Jesus as a philosopher, or as we would say, teacher, or maybe it might be more helpful to think in the category of coach or prophet. These are all very similar categories where it's someone's role and responsibility to teach and train others how to do something specific. And in the case of the philosopher, it's how to live well. How, what does it mean to live the good life? So what we're looking at this morning is how the first kind of non-negotiable foundational stone for a church is to be built on Jesus as teacher or philosopher or prophet. So we're going to go through that and think through. And what I just want us to think through a couple things this morning is what does it mean that Jesus came as and is a teacher and then how was he taught and how does he teach now? So two things. Jesus, he is a teacher. And then how does he, how was he taught? How does he do it? How does he do it now? <clears throat> so let's first read the text. And as you notice, what I want you to key in on are what are the people in their conception of who Jesus is? What categories are they using? So start in chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So he's in this category of prophet. He's in the category of teacher. He's in the category of someone who's come to teach us about the way we're supposed to live. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so one of the 
rocks, the first foundational stone, we've been saying that that stone that he's building his church is the confession. And the confession is that Jesus is the Christ. And what that means is that Jesus has three primary roles or responsibilities. And the first one is that he's the teacher. He's the prophet, the philosopher. He is the teacher. So Jesus was a teacher. And that's just something important to remember. That's what he came to do. When he came, that's what he came to do. And Matthew's gospel is all about the teaching gospel. It's setting it up for us. You know, there's those beautiful passages that frame the second major section in Matthew from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to the end of chapter 9. And in chapter 4, verse 23, it says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease. That's what he came to do, teaching, preaching, healing. And then Matthew wraps that up, that whole section in 9.35, saying the exact same thing. He went out through all the cities and all of the villages, uh, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming, preaching the good news, and healing every disease and every affliction. And so Jesus comes as a teacher. And now when you think about that, think about who are the teachers in our world now that we listen to. You know, he came dressed in the philosopher's garb is how they're, they're represented. But think about, all right, who are, the, who are the great philosophers of our age? So, for example, if you want a philosopher, you know, you want a philosopher of finance, you listen to someone like Warren Buffett. Or if you want a philosopher that'll tell you the books you need to feel empowered, you listen to Oprah. Did you know that it's estimated that if your book, so I don't know if we have any aspiring authors here, but it's estimated that if your book gets on Oprah's book club list, it's a bump of about $300 million. So who do we listen to to tell us what are the things that we should read to feel empowered? If you want a philosopher of productivity, you go to David Allen, philosophers of organization, Maria Kondo. We have philosophers of leadership like Jim Collins. And I don't think we put Jesus in the same category that he's a philosopher of life. He's who we're meant to turn to to answer the question for us. How do we live well? How do we die well? What is the meaning of life? And so he came as a teacher. And one thing is important to remind ourselves is that he still is a teacher. He didn't retire. He didn't quit. When he ascended into heaven, he didn't stop. And the way he teaches us now is he teaches us now, both formally and informally, through his people. But he still is the primary teacher of his church. And he continues that ministry through his word and his spirit. He hasn't transferred that authority to anyone. He hasn't given that over to a pastor or to a pope. He hasn't transferred it. He still has that responsibility. He still has that authority. But the way he does it is he uses, <coughs> he uses his people. So the teaching ministry of Jesus, and this is an important distinction as we go through this whole series, is have the categories in our mind that the church exists in two kind of arenas. It exists as an institution and an organism. It exists as something formal and informal. And his teaching ministry takes shape in both formal and informal ways. And, you know, the institution exist to unleash and empower the organism. You know, one of my convictions is the greatest force this earth has ever seen for good is the organism of the body of Christ unleashed out into the world. 
It's been the greatest thing to bring social transformation. There's been nothing like it. And the institution, the formal structures of the church, exist to equip, empower, unleash, and send out the organism out into the world. And so you have formal teachers, you have informal teachers. So just think about informal. I mean, this is the calling that we have, how the, the faith is going to be passed on from one generation to the next. You know, Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And these words that I command you today will be on your heart. So what do you do? You teach them to your children. You teach them diligently. You talk about them when you sit down. You talk about them when you rise up. You talk about them when you walk on the way. You talk about them when you lie down and rise. <coughs> I mean, therefore, Christ is the active uh, agent who's performing his prophetic ministry every time we talk about these things. Every time a parent is trying to teach a child at home or trying to teach a child at school or every time a believer is talking to another person and trying to encourage them and, and, uh, and talking with them, they're carrying on that informal ministry of Jesus as the teacher. So we have kind of the informal role, but then we also have the formal role that is really important to establish as a church. We do that in a formal sense. But Christ is always the active agent. He's always the one who's teaching and accomplishing through parents, through teachers, through friends, through all of your relationships. But then he also does it in a formal sense. So like in Jeremiah 3, when he says under the... <coughs> the new covenant, that he's going to give shepherds after his own heart. And what are they going to do? They're going to feed the people with knowledge and understanding. And so one of our core convictions here is that God's people need to hear his voice. And the way they do it is through both formal teaching and then informal relating. So from the formal standpoint, you know, it's the church's responsibility to provide things like training for future ministers that you ordain and you send out to provide, you know, administration of the word where we preach and teach in different formal settings. You know, Paul's use is where you provide milk to the babes and strong meat to those who can take it where you're providing those things. And then we preserve and translate and interpret and guard the word and have an established statement of faith where it says these are the things that we believe and we hold on to. One of the primary ministries here or any church is uh, that Christ has given us the authority to confess certain truths that these are the things we maintain and hold on to because Jesus wants his house to be a pillar because of the pillar and the foundation for the truth where we confess it and maintain it. And that's so helpful for us because we live in a chaotic world. We live in confusing times. We live in a world that's filled with deceptions and lies and having to navigate and, and, and move between these things is difficult. So we live uh, without these type things. We can fall prey to just heresy and error and just silliness, just cultural silliness. And so it helps maintain us. So Jesus is a teacher and he still carries on that role and responsibility, though, both through formal ways and informal ways. But here's something I've been thinking about more recently, and it's probably just because of the stage of life we're in. But the second thing I want you to think about is how was Jesus taught and then how does he teach? Like, how was he actually taught? And there's this a, a remarkable 
book that I read recently called, um, it's called The Chosen Few, How Education Shaped Jewish History from 70 AD to 1492. And what they do is they reconstruct because in the first century in Jerusalem, there was this transformation of education that was happening among Jewish children. And so we're thinking, all right, how did they go about educating their children? And is there something we can learn from this? So basic form of education is the basic way it went is the whole goal was to get them immersed in the text in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So what would happen, you'd have the ceremony when you were three, your father would wrap you up into their prayer shawl and he would take you as a little three-year-old bundle. And at this time, early time, it was only boys. So he would take the boys and they would lay them at the, the foot of either the teacher's house or the synagogue, wherever the formal teaching was happening in that little town. And so you would lay as a little prayer bundle as the family was, was dedicating you to the great task of being formed in education. And you were given, in essence, you would have a prayer book and you would have some form of candy. And the idea is that these two things go together. Worship and candy is sweet. You memorize these things because here is uh, the word is like honey. It's, it's, it's sweet. And then the idea was that uh, you would then begin to memorize you just begin to memorize. You would, everyone would memorize the prayer book, which is the Psalms. So you'd memorize the Psalms, and then you'd memorize the Torah. And they would start with Leviticus. That was the first book you started with, because that was the call to be holy as I am holy. And then you would work uh, back, and the whole goal was to get the word into you. Most kids would have that done by the time they were eight. By the time they were eight, they would have the first five, what we call the first five books of the Old Testament, all of the Psalms memorized. And then they would start working on the traditions of the elders and the fathers, what now is called the Talmud and the Mishnah. And many of them would have that by the time they were 13. So the goal is to master the text. The basic daily schedule they would have is kind of different because the clock it, time was different then because they didn't have watch it like the way we do. But basic structure of the schedule was up at about five and you'd be studying your text for the week from five to seven. That was the preparation. And then everyone would worship together from seven to eight. And then from eight to 10, you'd go back home for breakfast and your chores. And then at 10, you would come back and they would have them assigned where you have two little boys always connected with one older boy. And the older boy would walk the little ones through their lessons. Then you'd go home for lunch. And then the, uh, the little boys would then stay at home and do other chores. The older boys would then go back to do their own studies until five where everybody come back together again for daily worship. It's a pretty remarkable school structure and schedule. Assume that by the time they ate, they'd have it all memorized. And sometimes we kind of balk at that and think, think you know, that's amazing. There's, there's no way kids can do that. But I've worked in inner city places with kids who can't read but have every single Tupac song memorized. So I don't think it's a capacity thing. But that's how, they would, that's how Jesus was taught. And then you think, all right, well, then how does Jesus teach? How does he then teach? And I think the important thing there is they had such a promise of getting the word in them. And often they say it doesn't matter if they understand it. That's not the point. We've got to get it in. They'll understand eventually, but get it in. But then now how does Jesus teach? What way does he teach us? Because he's our great teacher, and he uses two things. The paradigm of his great teaching ministry is Luke chapter 24. We have the disciples coming home from Emmaus, and you know, they're so downcast and they're distraught because they feel like their hope, all of their hope was placed in this person, and he's been crucified and killed. And then Jesus comes alongside, and they don't recognize him. And uh, they, he asks them, why are you so downcast? And they say, are you the only one here who doesn't know what's going on? Like, we had hoped that this person would 
would redeem Israel, and then he's taken and died. And then it says that Jesus opened up the scriptures to them, and they said, did our heart not burn when he spoke to us? And the old idea is he opens up the word, and then he sets it on fire. He makes it come alive. He uses word and spirit. Word is the content, and then spirit is the life. You know, light and heat. He teaches with his word externally and internally <coughs> with his spirit. And what that does is it inflames the heart. It motivates the heart, but it also helps reveal to you the things of your heart. When he teaches you, you can see into your own heart in a way that's truly, say, miraculous. You know, if you think about it, we're never as creative as we are when we're self-justifying ourselves and when we're excusing ourselves. But the, the teaching of the heart, or Jesus reveals our heart in such a way where we can see who we really are. And then he also helps open up to us the beauty and the glory of the things that we don't see. He's the one who can tell us it will not profit you to gain the entire world and then forfeit your soul. He's going to help you be able to evaluate the things that are most important. He teaches the heart, but he doesn't just give words of knowledge. He also gives grace that brings life. He doesn't just give the light of the truth. He also gives the love of the truth. What he does is he helps orient both your loyalties and your loves. He teaches you what to do and then gives you the power to do that. Anyone who's ever had any experience with, I was going to say try and teach children, but it's really just teaching any other human can understand how frustrating it is to try and you can tell them what to do, but there's another step that has to happen before it gets done that often you don't have any control over is whether they have the power or they actually do it. And here the glory of his teaching ministry is he not only tells us what to do, he then empowers and enables us to do it. <coughs> so as we think about Jesus' great teaching ministry, you know, one of the things I just marvel at is that he is eager to teach us. He doesn't want us to leave us in a state of confusion or foolishness or ignorance. That's what he came to do. And one of the beautiful things about his teaching is it doesn't matter where you are, he will lift you up. He will make you become wiser and make you become, make you become better. And he's given us this great means of grace where we are intended to learn. So wrapping up, just thinking about institutionally, one of the most important ministries that we have is our teaching ministry. And this can take many forms. And what we need is we need people who are gifted in this area, who uh, have been gifted and called and can help shape and craft a, in a formal teaching ministry. But then we also need the teaching ministry where just the word is unleashed and it filters through uh, everything we do and we say. And, you know, one of the great ways that Christ is intended for us to teach on a week-in and week-out basis is just to be reminded of the things that we do and why we do them. And we had a middle school meeting where some of the parents of middle schoolers were meeting and just uh, kind of talking together about the, the challenge of raising middle schoolers. And one of the things I just reminded the scripture is that when God sets up the institution of the Passover, when he takes Israel out and he sets up the Passover and he says, right, we're gonna, we, you're going to have this memorial service where you wipe the blood on the thing and you eat this, this bread and there's wine at the table and you set this uh, service up and it's going to be done in such a way where when your children ask you, what do these things mean? The whole assumption is that the kids are going to be there and they're not going to know what's going on. And they're going to ask you, what does it mean? 
And the great gift under the new covenant is that here we celebrate that every week where we come to the table. And then the point is that the kids, they need to be here and they need to see it and they need to say, all right, what does that mean? And then it's our joy every week to say, all right, what does this mean? What this means is there was a holy and gracious father. And in his infinite love, he made us for himself. But we sinned against him. And we became, when we did, we became subject to evil and death. But then in his mercy, he sent his son, his only beloved son, into the world for us and for our salvation. And that son was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he dwelt among us in an obedience to the Father's will. He stretched out his arms on the cross and offered himself up once and for all. And by his suffering we might be saved. And by his resurrection, he broke the bonds that death has and he's trampled upon hell and Satan underneath his feet. And now he's the great high priest who has ascended to the right hand of the father and beckons us, come, come into my presence. This is a symbol of my great victory. He took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. And because this body was broken, no matter what brokenness you enter into, it is a promise that it will be healed. This is broken for you. Take in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And after he did, he said, drink this. This cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins and that the way you can have life, the way you can be restored, the way you can enter into the confident hope of my victory over death is you can have your sins forgiven. And this is my promise that my blood was shed so yours ultimately doesn't have to be. So take in remembrance of me. So Lord, we praise you for your broken body and your shed blood. We thank you for the tremendous teaching ministry that you have where you don't leave us in the darkness, but you want us to know what it means to, to, to live well and to experience life. So I pray that you would uh, help us, help us to confidently put our hope in you for all things, help us to trust in your word for all things, but ultimately help us to live well. We confess that we're swimming in a sea of uh, just brokenness and difficulty, and it can be so confusing to know how to truly live well. And so we thank you for your teaching. We ask that you help us to know it, and then ask that you help us to love it. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.